In today's text, Paul speaks about the fear of God. He also speaks about God's love for him. In, in these five verses, Paul gives us a recipe for godliness. The fear of God is spoken of all over Scripture as a sign of godliness and true religion. And if you've never feared God before, then I ask you, how do you know that you're a Christian? Another way to put it is this. If you do not fear God, how do you know that God loves you? It may sound contrary or contradictory, but the fear of God leads to loving God and knowing that God loves you. How is this possible? Well, our text today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 15, and I'd ask you to please turn in your Bibles with me there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul highlights some of the difficulties of his ministry. And if you know anything about the ministry of Paul, you'll know that his ministry was very difficult. He was afflicted in every way, but he continued to preach and to labor, trusting that God would cause fruit. What was his motivation? How was he able to persevere amidst such difficult circumstances? He explains his motivation beginning in chapter 5, verse 9. He writes, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we learn that all mankind will be judged by Christ, Christians included. You will be judged by Christ. I will be judged by Christ. If you think that because you're a Christian, you get to skip the judgment, you're wrong. That does not what it means. All men will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we know that Paul had his eye on that judgment seat, on that day of judgment, uh, because it says that he had as his ambition to be pleasing to Jesus. Thinking about that coming day of judgment motivated Paul to consider how his actions on this earth would be received by the Lord, and it motivated him to act. So from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 15, we read, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it over many, many generations and given it to us in a language that we understand. Father, we, we, we are slow and 
we understand only with much difficulty. And so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand. We pray that you would give tenderness to our hearts, that we would receive your word and obey it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this sermon is going to have three main points to it. Number one, the messenger is the message. Number two, Christians fear God. And number three, in the godly, fear and love embrace. So what do I mean when I say that the messenger is the message? The ability to persuade a crowd was highly valued in Paul's day. There were entire schools devoted to just teaching people how to speak in public and how to persuade men, groups of men. The content of the debate, however, of of a debate of public speaking, took a back seat to the style of delivery. The art of rhetoric was more important than what you said. If If you didn't actually have a conviction about what you said, it wasn't as important as your ability to persuade others. And so the men who could persuade others, who were able to use words well and and convince others, were highly esteemed. And so when Paul uses the word persuade in verse 11, that's the same word that would have been used to describe what these traveling debaters used to do. And so and so Paul is a little bit defensive, you might say. He, he it says that uh, or Paul, however, was not like the debaters of the age. That's that's obvious. Paul consistently puts his reputation where his mouth is. He didn't persuade men for money or for glory or fame. Paul says that he persuades men, but his motives are righteous and they are manifest to God. So what he's saying here is that his motives are clear and transparent to God. God sees them clearly and they are good, righteous motives. And he also is banking on the on the Corinthians seeing the same thing in him that God sees, that his motives are righteous and for them to see them clearly. So why is it so important for Paul that the Corinthians understand him with such great clarity? Paul doesn't need to prove himself. And we know that Paul wasn't just trying to puff himself up in pride. So why is he drawing attention to himself here? Well, remember Paul is an experienced, battle-hardened shepherd. And Paul recognizes that it's not enough for a pastor to just be right. A pastor must take the attitude of a sea captain. He must be personally invested in the ship that he's directing, right? doesn't make any sense for a captain to be on a boat in safety somewhere else if his ship that he's commanding is in the middle of terrible turmoil and and trouble. Is the crew member going to trust him if he's in safety somewhere else and and his crew is on some boat and it's tossing and turning in the waves? No, they're, they're not going to trust him. And Paul understands that. And so what does he do? He identifies himself so closely with his message. He says, I am so bound up with this message My hope is completely tied in this message that I all my eggs are in this basket. It's all there. And so follow me as I follow Christ. 
Paul threw himself into the work of the public ministry and he put everything he had online on the line to fulfill that calling. He so closely identified with the gospel that you could not separate him from it. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we as Christians are called to do. You may not be a pastor or even aspiring to be one, but there are many of you who say that you would like to be like Paul. You may be an aspiring pastor. There are a number of those in this room today. You may be an elder or a deacon. um, And you may be in those positions because you want to take responsibility for leading others. That's good. Good for you. But I ask you, what are you holding back? Your pastors, you pastors, college men, what are you banking on just in case the whole pastor gig doesn't work out for you? You elders, your reputation in this community means a lot to you. Your age and your stature means that your reputation means a lot. Are you willing for other men in this community, other men your age, to think of you as foolish and stupid for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about you women? Are you willing to jeopardize your relationships with your family or your friends for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How close are you willing to identify with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I'm calling you today to be like Paul. I'm calling you to identify yourself with the gospel so that no one will be confused about where you stand. Paul determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. When we profess the gospel, we sound more like this. Well, personally, I think that if hypothetically the Bible were true and if Jesus was really God, then God might intend for us to know Jesus. You know, like, it's just a thought that I had. Right? If you, if you read, read the Bailey blog, um, there's a good example of this recently, and you should check it out. Ask Josh Congrove about it. But brothers and sisters, this is not how Paul professes the gospel. Paul was only the messenger, but he was willing to put himself on the line for his message, and that is what we are to do. Now, Paul was motivated to put everything on the line for Jesus, but how? How in the world was he motivated to do that? In our own lives, we we recognize the call to, to speak openly and plainly about our faith in Jesus Christ. But we're full of fear and we don't do it. And we, and we wonder, how in the world are we going to be able to do that? So what is Paul's motivation? Well, this is the second main point of my sermon today. And it is this. Paul, like all Christians, feared God. In verse 11, Paul states that he's motivated to persuade men because he knew the fear of the Lord. The King James Version here uses the word terror instead of fear. And we try to tone this down. Um, uh, Joyce Huck was just telling me uh, in the in the break that in the she was she, she was teaching kids the song Amazing Grace and in that song uh, there's a there's the verse that says Grace has taught my heart to fear and fears or and fear uh, help me out here Grace my fears relieved right 
And so she was, she was realizing that this is a pretty difficult concept to teach children. And so how was she going to do it? Well, she was teaching the younger children, and they were getting it right away. Like, you know, they understand that to fear God is important. God is powerful, and he can totally wipe us out. He's, he's worthy to be feared. But she said that as, as she got up in the grades, as she was talking to fourth graders, they kind of were like, eh, I don't really fully understand this. And by the time she was teaching the fifth and sixth graders, they had no idea what she was talking about when she, when she was talking about the fear of God. And, and at some point, somebody said, well, you know, fear is kind of like, like a reverence or awe of God, right? We have no idea about the fear of God. And, and when Paul says, when Scripture says, talks about the fear of God, it really does mean the fear of God, all right? It really does. It sounds very strange to our ears as few gospel presentations in this day say anything about God that might make you fearful. But if the, if the fear of God is a curiosity to us, it's because there's a problem with us. All right. Scripture often mentions the fear of God. And when it says that someone feared God, it's a compliment to him. In Job 28:28, for instance, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. In Psalm 86.11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God is tender and merciful to those who fear him. In Psalm 103, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. In the New Testament, Jesus explicitly warns his followers to fear God. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Today, we think that Christians are not even supposed to fear God. But that's completely backwards. It's the wicked who do not fear God. It says in Psalm 36, verse 1, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So the righteous fear God, and the wicked do not. And brothers and sisters, if you do not know the fear of God, you will never know the love of Christ. This is the mistake of our modern time, and this is what is commonly called cheap grace. But cheap grace, brothers and sisters, is no grace at all. And if you do not fear God, then I tell you, you have no hope of heaven. If you know nothing about God's fear, or the fear of God, rather, if God's holiness and hatred of your sin doesn't concern you, then I ask you, how can you presume to be a Christian? Is repentance a daily part of your life? Or has your conscience grown hard and callous? The godly, like the Apostle Paul, know the fear of the Lord. So, we have to understand what it is to fear God, and we need to understand this point very carefully. A Christian fears God in the way that a son fears a father who loves him and disciplines him. 
Okay? So, if a son speaks sweetly to his mother and to his father and tells them how much he loves them, what do we know about that son if, in fact, he never obeys them and ignores what, they're, what, he, what they call him to do? Does he fear them? Does he love them, actually? No, he does not. A son who loves his father obeys his father. And it's the same for a Christian. A Christian who says that he loves God, but does not obey God, is not sorrow, so, does not have sorrow for his son, does not fear God, and does not actually love him either. And this leads me to my final point today. In the godly, fear and love embrace. You may have heard the phrase before, and um, Dave Carell helped me to find where the actual quote, I, I believe it's, um, it's, sorry? Thomas Watson, that's right. Um, the quote goes like this. Thomas Watson writes, Faith cures the trembling heart. It gets above fear as oil swims above the water. To trust God makes him to be a God to us. To have God to be a God to us is to love him. In the godly, fear and love kiss each other. To have him be a God to us is to obey him. Fear and love are on intimate terms. Okay? They are so closely bound together that you cannot separate them. Now, we must be very careful then to make a distinction between slavish and hopeless fear and the fear of God that leads to repentance and faith. Slavish, hopeless fear is what non-Christians have, and the fear that leads to repentance and faith and love is what Christians have. So, let me explain it like this. Fear, just like faith, must have an object. Right? When, when the modern man speaks about faith in these uh, broad terms without any object, um, it's meaningless. Right? You can't talk about faith in, in general. It has to be faith in something. And um, the fear of God, like faith, has to have an object. And the fear of God is very different than the fear of the boogeyman, okay? When I was a kid in the Congo, I remember one night lying in bed and waiting to fall asleep. My parents were missionaries, just so you know, so I grew up in, in the Congo. The de- yeah, the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. There's more than one Congo, so just in case you were curious. Um, so I was a kid in the Congo, and I remember one night lying in bed waiting to fall asleep. And I don't know why, um, I think that it was probably something spiritual, but um, for some reason I, I had this growing sense of anxiety and fear as I laid in bed just waiting to fall asleep. There wasn't anything abnormal about the night, I was just waiting. And for, uh, I had this growing sense of fear, and then all of a sudden I was gripped with terror. And I stood up, right, bolt upright in my bed, and I just started to scream. And I have no reason why, 
But I remember that feeling vividly, and I also remember vividly my parents rushing into the room and my dad grabbing the side of my bed and looking around and turning on the light and saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? There wasn't anything physically wrong. I I can't explain it. Um, But I was completely gripped with fear and with terror. That is like the fear of the boogeyman, and that's not the kind of fear that I'm talking about here. Our nation has given itself to fear, but it hasn't given itself to the fear of the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't watch movies very often, but I, I do watch trailers every now and then, just to kind of see what's going on. And um, I've noticed over the years that uh, there's an increasing number of horror movies that have come out. And it used to be that horror movies were reserved for Halloween. Now they come out all throughout the year. And uh, I've even noticed that there's generally a horror movie that is released on or around Christmas Day. Why is this? Well, horror movies and horror video games are how our nation processes its guilty conscience before God. The characters in horror movies end up being completely crushed and destroyed without mercy. Everybody dies, and they all die without mercy. If it were not for the grace of God, that is exactly how you and I would end up. A horror movie is like the law of God applied entirely devoid of grace. And this is a very important point to consider. The fear of God's punishment, not the fear of God, but the fear of his law applied applied to you apart from grace, will never produce love for God. It will only produce hatred for God. But the fear of God is not like the fear of the villain in a horror movie. And this is critical for us to understand. The villain in a horror movie crushes without mercy everyone who happens to be in his path. If that's your understanding of God, you will only hate God. But praise God. It says in verse 14 and 15, it it teaches us what God has done for us. It says that for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died For all, therefore all died. We do deserve to have God crush us. But instead, he demonstrated his love for us by crushing his own son that we might live. Jesus died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Isaiah 8, 13 to 14 puts it like this. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. If you do not know God as your sanctuary, then I urge you, fear him and come to him. Taste and see the love of God in Jesus Christ. God is tender and full of love to those who come humbly to him. In Psalm, I read part of this Psalm earlier, Psalm 103. I'll read a few more verses. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So, brothers and sisters, the fear of God is like the fear of a father who disciplines his son. It's not slavish obedience, um, but it is 
or let me put it this way, the, the fear of God and the love of God are joined together in obedience to God. That's how they come together. They are on intimate terms, and they come together in obedience. So for us, for you, if you call yourself a Christian, love, if you say you have love for God, that's good. If you say you fear God, that's also good. But you must bring them together, and you bring them together by obeying God. You must obey God. And you can obey Him as a father who loves you and who is, disciplines you because he loves you.